This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, please reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to get on our email list for weekly maintenance stories and our monthly newsletter, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and the, uh, the little text bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. In our shop, we're like backlogged into, I mean, like totally packed through the end of October. Uh, and we're, and, and we have stuff scheduled into next year, but that's just normal recurring stuff. But I mean, like fully packed up into uh, October and November. And I'm seeing that in when I manage planes. Shops are like this all over the place. So I don't know if there's this major uptick in people flying or we have a whole lot more airplanes out there. And I don't even know how to track that. But, boy, just be sure if you've got maintenance you need done on your plane, schedule it like a year in advance if you can. Everywhere. I mean, this, it's not just my shop. This is, this is shops all over the place. Yeah, this is a terrible time. It's uh, you know we we run it we're running into the same problems with if anybody ever needs to get an an engine torn down or overhauled or replaced, this is like the worst time in history to do it because the lead times are just horrendous. I know Lycoming was quoting eight months for delivery on engines, and I think it may be down to six months now, but. Boy, if you if you need an engine, and, and overhaul shops are the same way. We're, the, the, we're finding that engines go into overhaul shops, and they're getting stuck there for months and months at a time. Used to be, you know, we figured that to remove the engine, ship it to an overhaul shop, get it overhauled, get it back, and put it back in the airplane would be about sixty days usually. Now it can be can be six eight months, and um, it's a combination of supply chain problems. And uh, labor shortages, because nobody wants to go back to work after COVID, it seems like. Um, and it's not just airplanes. I, I just, I had, I have a, a Dell laptop and the R key was, was sticking. 
And uh, so I called Dell. I had an underextended warranty. I called Dell to have somebody come out and replace the keyboard. It took two months to get a keyboard. Oh. Once it arrived, they they got it installed the next day. But but it took two months. It was stuck on a container ship somewhere. Well, at least the container Uh, ship didn't burn. (laughs) Yeah, with your car in it. (laughs) But this is just absolute crazy time. Well, I've been having the darndest time finding Aeroshell 5, which is standard oil uh, grease for greasing wheel hub bearings. And I actually um, dug one out of a bin at the college. I felt like I was like dealing drugs, you know. Hey, buddy, you got some Aeroshell? <laughs> and and I have a whole stick of it, and it's like worth its weight in gold because um, it's back ordered six months at the local supply shop, and uh, Spruce just doesn't carry it. They they said no no inventory. Well, Aeroshell Five is so old school, Colleen. You know, if, if you if you were cool, you'd be using Aeroshell Twenty Two, right? You know. I could do that, but I could also use olive oil. I mean, you know, I just figured I would use what the book said. Yeah, that was a low blow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our first question is from Eric, who just wants to turn left. Go ahead, Eric. Hi, good afternoon. Um, So I was flying a Pitts S1S from the factory in after Wyoming, Back to Apple Valley, California. It was a six-leg trip. And on the sixth and final leg, almost all the way there over Barstow, California, I banked left, and the engine started running rough on me. So I rolled upright and came right back to life. And I thought, well, it must just be the upper wing tank or the cruise tank. So I switched from the upper wing tank down to the fuselage main tank, flew level for a couple minutes just to make sure it was feeding, and again turned left, and it again started to run rough. So I leveled the wings again, and the engine came back again. At that point, I just kind of paused and went, hmm, it wasn't a five-gallon cruise tank, and it wasn't the main tank. I showed plenty of fuel in the main tank, so kind of rolled right to look for the uh, possible landing spot over the interstate, and the RPM actually increased, so that was really strange. Uh, I banked left again, and it started to sputter, so I came back to right, and it roared back, played around with the mixture, no effect, but I elected with five degrees shallow banks to take it the rest of the way up at altitude of 9,500 back to Apple Valley. Made it to the destination using right hand patterns. And <laughs> obviously, I, I could just see the I can see the base leg turns, the two seventy right to the right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had to do that in a twin Comanche one time on the ground. I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. So all right hand turns, nice descending turns. Made it back uneventful and uh pulled the airplane in the hangar and we took the uh there no fuel leaks noted plenty of fuel we drained the fuel first to sample it you know just completely and and it was it was spotless so we thought well it's got to be the flop tube you know pitt's got a flop tube for aerobatics so that's was in the header tank we pulled the header tank flop tube looked fantastic but, you know, we went ahead and replaced that anyway and then started going through other stuff. The fuel flow divider was inspected, looked good. Injectors looked good, cleaned them, reinstalled them. And, and about that time, my AMP he started really zeroing in on the uh, wobble pump. The wobble pump's an interesting little thing in a pits because it's got a fuel selector, a wobble pump, and a uh, 
filter all in the same assembly. And so he was, and that's where the two tanks met. So he was, he was focused on that. And that's what he thought. So, well, couldn't find anything in the logbook about it. We pulled it out, sent it off to a machine shop that builds them up in rough and ready California, had them overhaul it. They said it looked great. No problems. They overhauled it anyway, sent it back. So we're really scratching our heads now, went through every hard fuel line, every soft fuel line, everything looked good. Tiny little cracks on the hard fuel lines uh, with inside the B-nuts, but again, no leaks. Um, Given it was a pressure-fed system and we had recently replaced the uh, mechanically driven fuel pump, you know, we didn't think it was the fuel servo, but eventually uh, we did find a broken safety wire on the fuel servo. Um, but anyways, after that, we're kind of stuck. It's like, well, why would this airplane not run in a left turn, run better in a right turn? And it, and it still does it, right? After all that? Well, I haven't had the guts to take it flying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I read an article one time about the most efficient way to get from A to B, like in downtowns. And if you can do it with all right-hand turns, it's the most efficient way. Left-hand turns are just a problem. So... Yeah, they're a time sink. It's going to be a problem at Reno. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm just so disappointed that that you you didn't do more troubleshooting in the air, like to see what would happen if you were inverted and stuff. You know, I mean, we (laughs) we we would have so much more data to work with. Yeah. Well, and the strange thing is, you said you were flying aerobatics, you flew multiple legs, and then all of a sudden it started happening on that last leg with full fuel. You know, I, I've had trouble with flop tubes before, and it was because my flop tube was so old that when I removed it, I could blow soap bubbles out cracks in the middle of the flop tube. So when fuel got low, it sucked air. But I mean, I trust you, you know, you fly aerobatics, you've been flying a lot. Why would it start doing this now on the cross-country home? That doesn't make any sense. So I did ask multiple friends about this, including Gary DeBond from IAC, and I reached out to Tim Just, but I didn't get an answer from him. You probably worked with Tim at Apple Valley when you got there, maybe, he, probably. He knows, he knows the airplane, yeah. Yeah. So Gary was really stumped, but he did say that sometimes you get bubbles in the fuel divider, and you did say you overhauled it, but he asked if you had bled it when you... I don't know. Does that make any sense for the temperature or where you fueled up? Or Well, no. So this last leg, I took off out of Lake Havasu, headed to Apple Valley. And it was a climbing left turn, no problems, no sputtering, nothing, very strong. And I had been flying. Uh, I did do an overnight in St. George, Utah. And so I, this was only three legs on this day. I really don't think it was temperature being it was in November. So it, it's, you know, the thought of... Uh, I know exactly where you're going. Um, I don't know where I'm going. With, <laughs> with the bubbles, is, is, it doesn't seem like it was, a, uh, you know, back in the back in high school, I had one of those trucks that did it. What do they call that, where it gets the bubbles and then it just stalls out? It's well, va- uh, vapor, vapor lock. lock, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was vapor lock. It didn't. Have, wasn't symptomatic of that. And why would a vapor lock only happen in a left turn? I, exactly. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Makes no yeah. sense. Yeah. It has to be the flop tube. It has to be the flop tube. That's yeah. But he replaced it. I know. Well, the flop the flop tube was great. Also, the other thing to note about the flop tube is in the header tank, which is about a two gallon tank. It's not in the. Uh, it, not in the you main. know. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not in the main tank like like a typical pits. 
it only, you know, it only has to move two or three inches either side, right? Maybe a total right. of five to six inches throw. And so it's not really flopping around like a lot of other ones. And it was, it was in really good shape. I mean, it wasn't like even close to being questionable. But let me get this straight. So I, ha- I drew a little diagram of your fuel system because I wanted to make sure I understood this. You said this initially happened on the upper tank. The upper tank is plumbed directly into the wobble pump or through the header? No, so the the upper tank is can be either a fuel tank or a smoke tank, and so it goes down into a uh, a divider. But it has that airplane has not had smoke in it for three, four, five years. I tell you, I, I do have one other hypothesis I want to ask you about. So we ended up taking the fuel controller off and sending it out to uh, Airflow Performance. And Wait, tell me what kind of engine this is. Is Lycoming? Yes, Lycoming IO360 Experimental, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a parallel valve experimental. Right, okay. And the fuel servo is a Bendex fuel servo. Okay, uh, RSA 5 or? Correct. Okay. And um, so we sent that out, and what they found was that the fuel servo part- portion looked good, but the throttle body, one of the mounting holes has uh, had kind of been ovaled out and showed a little bit of vibrational damage. And so what they are thinking is when I rolled left, it opened up enough air to suck in air downstream of the fuel servo into the intake and lean out the mixture. You just lean the mixture out? Wow, that's a lot of leaning. Yeah, and then when I would roll right, it would close it up and better seal. So when is when is that coming back to put on the engine? It's uh, got a UPS tracking number right now. So, are you? I should you, have it by the end of the week. I'm not. I don't think I'll be able to get it on this weekend. But are you going to be satisfied with that enough to go fly the airplane and see what it does? I think so because nothing else is left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do climbing left turns. I'm sorry, right turns. Right turns. Yeah. Be sure you get that. You know, correct. Tell the tower I'm making right pattern today. <laughs> well, I think I think we have to admit that Eric has stumped the collective here. Stumped the collective chumps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're going to have to come back on, though, after you put this servo on and, and let us know what it does. Okay. Do you have a parachute yeah. on the airplane or on your body when you fly it? I, I do, yeah. So yeah. the engine, how high, does, how high does the airplane have to carry you before you can jump out? We just need to know how... How long the engine has to run before it quits again? Parachute is advertised to open in 300 feet. But you got to get out of the airplane, too. So what, say at least 500 feet? So how long's the runway? You want to take off, hold about 10 feet, get a lot of speed up, and then just go vertical? And It's a pretty good runway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I might have to study that F-16 return to service profile. That's right. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Viking departure. Well, that was that was really a stumper, Eric. Thanks for calling. Um, but let us know what you find. We'd love to hear what the mystery was when you solve it. Okay, I'll do that. Thanks, Eric. Thank Good you. Luck. Our next question is from Doug, who's ready to pick up a paintbrush, maybe a roller, whatever it takes. Go ahead, Doug. <laughs> uh, hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. 
Uh, it's occurred to me that in economic terms, one of the most important wear items on my airplane is actually the paint job. Uh, airplane paint jobs are hideously expensive. They take lots of downtime. Apparently, they involve removing control surfaces. The whole thing sounds like a horror show that I want to put off for as long as possible. My airplane's paint job is showing what I think are normal signs of wear and tear. My questions are, aside from hangering the airplane, what can I do to extend the life of the paint job? And in particular, should I be trying to touch up paint in damaged areas? And if so, how should I best do that? Well, so the paint serves a lot of purposes. Uh, the most obvious that we think about is makes it look good. But the reality is it's doing a lot of protection uh, for corrosion issues. So yes, touching up the paint is a really good thing to do. It doesn't matter uh, what paint you put on it particularly. There's no, there are a few uh, aviation specific paints, but they're really, for the most part, modifications of automotive paint. So you can use wrong colors, the right colors. Uh, activated paints are probably gonna be the best uh, in terms of their um, strength. We don't typically clear coat aircraft. You didn't say what kind of airplane it is. It's an RV-9A that fortunately ah. someone else built. Ah, okay. So <laughs> if you can find the original paint, it's nice to use the same paint as the original just because. And you can just apply the paint with a, a touch-up brush. There's no approved specific way to do it. It's nice to spray it on because you get the, the proper thickness and all that. You can get a touch-up uh, airbrush down at Harbor Freight, for that matter, and they do a nice job or just anything to get it covered. And that'll make it last quite a bit longer and protect the airplane from the corrosion. That's the main thing. But yes, and this is an owner, you're pilot rated, it's experimental, all that. So this is definitely something that you can do. But I, I have to warn you, though, paint will really bite you. Paint is a, a fine art. And so, and I've done some touch-up work on mine. I just finished painting um, part of the interior of my plane. You will spend multiple days masking things off and protecting the rest of the airplane. And then you will spend 15 minutes applying your paint or prepping the surface. And then you will spend 15 minutes applying. So it's not a trivial thing to spray paint. If you can touch it up with a brush that makes it a lot easier, you will find that the color will not match no matter what you do because your paint has faded and the original color will come nice and bright and cheery. And you may see your airplane looking like a molting hide of an animal. <laughs> oh, so there's a lot of temptation to just start going and cleaning things up. And then you'll step back and you'll say, oh, my God, what did I do? So... Be, be a little careful and, and uh, measured with the paint. He, you know, he didn't say he wanted it to look good. Yes, he so did. So all that masking and all that kind of yeah, stuff, no, that's I, just I, over the top. Oh. I think that's a good point. That, that, that it, it, some people care about the cosmetics. Some people care about the functionality. The, the purpose of paint primarily is to as a sealant to, to protect the aluminum from, from corrosion. And by the way, if there if 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 there's an area where the paint is is flaked off that that you want to touch up, make sure that the aluminum that has been exposed isn't corroded. If so, you need to treat the corrosion before you put the new paint on. Otherwise, you will get corrosion under the paint. Something you want to etch fil it. Filiform yeah. corrosion that uh, yeah. just it'll start make the paint like stick little, better too. Little snakes. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Aside from that, in in terms of prepping the surface, does it need to be sanded, primed, or oh yeah. Just, well, you you you, ne you never want to sand aluminum. That's for sure. Yeah, a little Scotch Brite will go a long way to clean it. 
and you want to use something like uh, alumaprep, which is an etching chemical. And then there's uh, alodyne, which is a conversion coating that helps the primer stick. So if you've got one little bitty spot, like the paint popped off a rivet head, you're not going to go to all this trouble. No. <laughs> you're going to take a brush and you're going to put it on there just to cover it. But the bigger the spot, the more time you're going to spend prepping it. If you get an automotive paint person involved, they know some phenomenal tricks to blend all this in and make it work. But you have to be in charge because they'll show up with a DA sander. And it takes them <laughs> about 15 seconds to sand all the way through that 25,000 yeah. aluminum sheet. So. Well, and what's more important is, is to understand that, that the, the aluminum the airplane's made out of is, is alclad. So it's it's an aluminum alloy that's clad on both sides with a very very thin layer of of pure aluminum that's that is corrosion resistant. The alloy is is very active and will corrode quite rapidly if it's exposed. Uh, so the the alclad is is the first line of protection, but it's very very thin, and then the paint over it is a second line of protection. So if the alclad is intact, you don't want to you don't want to be sanding through it because it's it's very important. If you do have to go through the alclad because of significant corrosion that you need to re remove, then you need to do all of this alodining and stuff before you paint it. But we want to try to keep the 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 alclad intact if we possibly can because it's probably the best defense against corrosion. Yeah, appreciate the call. Thanks, Doug. Our next question is from Andy, who is interested in keeping it cool. Go ahead, Andy. Well, actually, I'm I'm uh, I'm wondering if I'm keeping it too cool. My my question <laughs> relates to: Is there such a thing as running cylinders too cold? I have heard you guys talk a little bit about this in my engine, which is uh, an IO five forty at cruise. Um, I'm typically seeing cylinder head temperatures somewhere between two hundred eighty five and three hundred and ten degrees. That's on a on a warm warm summer day, which in my part of the world, that's in the 50s or 60s. When it gets really hot, like into the upper 70s, I might see 320 degrees. But that's about as warm as I ever see it. I do have uh, an engine monitor and I have probes in all the cylinders. So, What kind of engine monitor, out of curiosity? It's a it's a, one of the older EIs. Uh -huh. UB, UBG 16? Well, you just, you just brought up an interesting, an interesting yep. subject. It's a US 8A, does that sound right? Or is that the fuel flow? I can't remember. If it's an EI, it's a UBG 16, probably. If it's really old, yeah. No, it's older than that. Oh, oh so it's it, one cylinder. It, it would have to. Oh, the only thing that's older than a UBG 16 is a US 8, which is the ultimate scanner that, oh, that, yeah. that doesn't have a bar graph. It just has digital readouts. Yeah, that's exactly okay. it. Yep. Okay. It's a US 8A. Okay. Okay, there's there's a couple of different things that we can say about this, but one thing, the reason I asked you what kind of engine monitor, Electronics International has an interesting situation with cylinder head temperature, and we've done a bunch of statistical studies out of our database. EI offers two different CHT probes that screw into the well on the bottom of the cylinder. One is called a P100, and one is called a P101. The probe that they normally ship standard is the, is the P100 probe. And it always reads way low. And 
you can order a P101 probe, which is, is a bayonet probe, and it goes into a bayonet adapter. And that probe reads just right. And it agrees with JPI probes and Alcor probes and all the other probes. The EI P100 probe is an outlier. And the reason it's an outlier is because every other probe, including the EI's P101, is a spring-loaded probe. That When you install it into that well, there's a spring that holds it tight, holds the tip of the probe tightly against the bottom of the well. But the P100 probe, which is what they ship standard, doesn't have a spring, and it doesn't touch the bottom of the well. So it's really not measuring cylinder head temperature. It's measuring air temperature in the well. It's got a it's got a, 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 a air insulation between the probe and the cylinder head, and it and it tends to read lower than than what it should. So you may want to check to see what kind of probes you have installed. But the the other thing, aside from how accurate your readings are, the basic question was: is, is, Are you running too cool? The only downside of running too cool is that if combustion temperatures are low enough, you, you wind up having problems with lead scavenging. Uh, this is assuming that you're running the engine on avgas on 100 low lead. If, you, if you're running it on unleaded fuel, you don't have a problem. You can run as cool as you want. If you're running it on leaded avgas, if it runs cool enough, you start getting lead deposits building up on spark plugs and on valve stems and places that you don't want lead deposits. So if you're worried about running too cool, what I would suggest is just put a borescope in the cylinder and look around. Actually, the first thing you do is just pull a spark plug and look in, at the spark plug and see if, you, if, you, if you're getting a lot of lead accumulation in the spark plug. But uh, stick a borescope in. Take a look at the at the exhaust valve stem with the with the valve all the way open. If you're not seeing a lot of deposit buildup, then just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about it. If you are seeing excessive amounts of deposit buildup, then you may want to alter your operating uh, procedure to uh, to raise the cylinder head temperatures a little bit. But if if you're not seeing problems with lead, then I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not sure what I would do to, to raise the temperature. I do find that uh, just a couple of <clears throat> more data pieces to add. I do pull my spark plugs at 100 hour to clean them. And um, the lower plugs do uh, usually have some lead deposits in them. It's usually not you know, coming all the way out past the tip and fouling them. But, <laughs> but there's, a, there's, there's some lead in there. And um, and I clean them out. And that's partly why I pull them at 100 hour. I haven't looked at the valve stems, you know, at the exhaust valve stems. The other piece of information is that uh, I have friends and customers that run this same engine and, uh, you know, airframe and engine combination. And some of them have um, JPI engine monitors and they are seeing pretty much the same temperatures. So a couple of things that I noticed. Uh, One is specifically in the, in the mall. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Your, so that, that 540 in a mall, I think it's got an, an overly efficient uh, cowling design. It just yeah. pulls a lot of air through there. Do you have cowling? You're running box? a really low temperature, I mean, low power setting as well. 2,322 inches. That's what, 55%? Oh, well, depending on, well, it's, no, I, I think that's, I think that's closer to, to 60, 65%. 
but that's, um, I mean, this engine red lines at 2,400. So coming down, you're only coming down hundred RPM off the red line. Yeah. But the 22 inches is pretty low. So, I mean, that's just a part of why the cylinder head temperatures are low. You're not pulling a lot of power out of that size engine. Okay. But, but again, the primary risk is either persistent spark plug fouling, which I assume you're not having, because if you were, you would have said so. And and the other risk is is exhaust valve sticking, which, which is, you know, a problem with, with Lycomings, uh, which is why they recommend doing the wobble test and why we sometimes have to have to ream out the valve guides and stuff. So th- those are the downsides of running cool CHTs uh, with 100 low lead fuel. And, you know, basically, if you if you just look to see whether whether you're developing a, a problem like that or not, you know, it, it's it's conceivable that maybe if you're operating a mall in Alaska, you need some sort of a winterization kit that limits the amount of cooling airflow through there. I don't know. Yeah. And I've, I've thought about that. I'm not aware of one that's available for that. So I'd have to fabricate something, which is, that's, that's fine. I could do that. That's Alaska. Yeah, you're, you're in Alaska. You're allowed to do stuff like <laughs> you that. Do right? anything you want. It yeah, is easier. It is a lot, I, I'm an, I am an IA and it's a lot easier to get field approvals in Alaska. I will say. <laughs> but interestingly, one of my customers, his mall is in Colorado, which gets quite warm in the summertime. And, and um, he reports similar temperatures i'm sure they're a bit warmer when when you get into those 90 degree days at altitude and so forth but so maybe it's just really grossly overcooled which you know in a way it's a little unfortunate because it because if it's overcooled it also means that you have more cooling drag than you really need and maybe it would go a little faster if you didn't <laughs> i'll pull out one of those probes just to see um what see it is. is the spring-loaded one that's a very that's yep. a very good data point yeah well, thanks again for dialing in. Take care. Bye-bye. Our next question is from Tom, who has a PhD in compression readings. Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> well, I won't say it's a PhD, but it's a, it's a something. Uh, but anyway, after listening to that, uh, I have an 0320D2G that I had overhauled about 100 hours ago. And at the 18-hour point, one of the cylinders measured 38 over 80. So I brought it back to the shop that did it. And, uh, and it, was, it's a, it was an overhaul shop. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't done on the field or by an AMP in a shop somewhere. It was an actual overhaul shop. And uh, now it's got about 100 hours on it. And I've got two cylinders in the low 70s and two cylinders in the mid 80s. And they're all leaking at the valves. And basically all of them have been getting slightly worse as time goes on. So at some point I'm expecting they're all going to be in the 60s or below. So even though we kind of all agree that uh, compression isn't necessarily a really bad thing, not everybody understands that. And when I finally decide to sell that, which will probably be maybe eight or 10 years from now, I'm going to either take a financial hit for repairing them then or replacing cylinders or doing something or chasing away potential buyers altogether. So and at that point, costs are going to be higher than they are now. So basically, I'm looking at it as possibly a pay me now, pay me later thing where do I wait later and pay twice as much or do I just get it done now, be done with it, put on new Lycoming or Millennium cylinders? I don't have to bore scope every annual. I don't I relieve the anxiety level of, oh, my God, now what do I have to do to the engine? 
Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Wow. <laughs> hey, what do you hey, have Tom, against Tom, Tom, let me ask you a question. Supposing you uh, anticipated the possibility that 10 or 15 years from now you were going to sell your house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> would you put a new roof on it now or would you put a new roof on it in 15 years when you were getting ready to sell it? Well, it depends. If it's leaking, I would do it now. Well, I, I, I agree, but let's let's assume it's just kind of looking kind of crummy and <laughs> it, 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 it's, 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 it's a wood shake roof that doesn't really pass code anymore. So you couldn't, you'd, you'd have to put in composition. I, I, think the, I think the answer is I might as well do it now and get the, get the benefit of it myself rather than do it just before I sell it. He, he's, he's not going with this quite right. No, he? He, he's, <laughs> he, he answered it exactly the opposite way that I would answer it. It, it, it to me it would So here's here's what I'm hearing is that this bothers you. So <laughs> you're you're not really concerned about the reliability aspect and all that sort of thing. It's just bothering you because what it's doing right now isn't going to be a problem. But it's irritating you because first off you know too much about compression. See that's I think that's the main problem. He's overanalyzing. Yes. Yeah. Which is okay. I do that all the time. Numbers are cool. Every annual or, or even before that, I'm constantly be going to be doing something. And there's some amount of anxiety level because when you do have low compressions, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem, but it could. Well, first of well, all, none of those compressions yeah. are low. No, yeah, none of those yeah, are bad. That's thir- true. 38, I, 38 I over, say, four, is, over is 80 low, years, but yeah. Yeah, but you're assuming that new cylinders are going to fix this problem forever, and they don't. You're still going to borescope them each year, too. Yeah, it, you're, just because you put on you new a, cylinders. Get absolutely. out a borescope free card just yeah. because you just bought a, a new cylinder. Background: This engine was put in new in 1981, mm-hmm. and I flew it for 32 years and put on 2,200 hours. Mm-hmm. And at that time, all the compressions were in the mid mid to upper 70s. One of them was in the mid '60s, and it was a ring problem. We were, I was burning oil, mm-hmm. and we said, "Well, I could just do that one cylinder. I could just top it." Or since that engine had never been opened up in 32 years, we decided maybe we ought to look inside. And what did you find? You know what I found? The it was perfect. The, it was perfect. Light the crank. Uh-huh. It was still within new spec. Yeah. See, you should have never touched you that. Why just did left you, it why alone. Why did you do that? Uh, yeah. You know, we 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 see we see O three twenties like in flight school operations go four or five thousand hours. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, without, soon, any, without any problem. As soon as you did something, that's when you had the cylinder with the problem, yeah. right? Well, yeah. The problem was that it was thirty two years, and we just thought, you know, without ever, who knows what was inside? It was just all that time there could have been rust, could have all sorts. But of you things. do know because you should have been checking the oil and looking in the cylinders and. And, you know, there's ways to tell what's going on in there. Oh, well, it's you know, water I'm, under the bridge. So I'm 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 62 and I'm not going to let them splice me open just to see what's going on inside. <laughs> yeah. oh, come on. <laughs> You're well past TBO, Paul. I'm well past. <laughs> and Paul, you don't, what, you don't look a day over Helen 61. Helen says that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Some people boy. may wish they would splice me open to see what's inside, but not going to happen. Well, cylinders are wear items, right? Yeah, you sh- so you, sh- you should not have an anxiety. 
you should borescope your cylinders. When you see a problem developing, most of the time, the problem can be resolved without removing the cylinder. We, we have had a really good uh, luck with, with lapping valves, particularly on lycomings and, and bringing them back to... Plus, there's th- this old saying, which I'm sure that Paul will agree with, is that an A&P mechanic can get any compression reading he wants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're we're pretty good. Com- at that. Com- compression readings are so totally unreliable because they there are just so so many variables that go into what that meter is going to read. I can get pretty consistent readings, and I've done it hot, and I've done it cold, and oh, if you well, if you're doing your own readings, then you then then they're probably yeah. honest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are some mechanics and compression checks are are useful, so we don't want to totally discount them, but. Most of the time, we have airplanes that come in here. We haven't seen them. Maybe it's the first time we've seen them. Who knows who's been doing the compression checks before? So to use compression checks done by multiple different mechanics in different places, different times a year, it's not a really good comparison. If you're doing your own compression checks and you and you understand compression checks probably better than most anybody, so you can get probably fairly consistent results and maybe, maybe even some trending, but the debris that gets under the exhaust valve, for instance, is going to blow your trends totally out of the water because one little chunk of debris and suddenly you go from 77 over 80 to 50 over 80. Well, that's not a good trend at all because it's it's not showing where, it's showing this one little chunk that once you go fly the engine and check it again, that may go away. So um, I'm, I'm relatively confident that it's not debris because I've done exactly that. I go fly it three or four hours and then come back and measure it again. And I get within one or two PSI of what it was before. So if it, mm-hmm. if it, if it were debris, it would be gone by then. Either that or it wasn't going to go away, one or the other. Well, exactly. It may have imprinted if, itself if, on the if valve. It's, if it's, if it's a, a valve leak then and it's bothering you, then you should just lap the valve. Well, he had it yeah. lapped once. He yeah, said since, he did the exhaust I had valve. that one really bad valve at 18 hours, I, I kind of lost confidence in the valve drive they did on those cylinders, quite mm-hmm. frankly. That's why I'm, I'm thinking. That's why you shouldn't have taken it apart to begin with. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. yeah no, I understand. I, I know. But I know. It is, it is pretty cool, though. You lapped it and boom, it came right back up. Yeah. Well, it came right back up to the mid seventies, but that's one of the low ones again. That's the one that's in the mid sixties again. That's but seventies is fine. So it's not. That's why I said I've kind of lost confidence in what's going on here. So I, I don't. Now, if you have a valve leak long enough, doesn't that does that not burn the valve and or the seat eventually? That's the reason that yeah. you need to stick a borescope in there right. and take a look <laughs> at it. Because if, if, you, if you look at it, it's either very far gone, in which case you probably have to pull a cylinder, or you caught it when it wasn't really far gone, which I'm guessing it's not far gone because your compressions are not very low. And 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 then it's a really good candidate for, for lapping, just lapping cleaning, again. cleaning the mating surfaces yep. up. You're right, though. The surfaces have to mate to exchange the heat properly. So eventually, if it's... Yeah. If the exhaust valve is warped, or if there's a lot of metal erosion, or if there if there are, you know, stress cracks on it... Or if then, it's not then, rotating. Then, then you're going to need to replace the valve, and the only way to do that is pull the cylinder off. But if the valve is, is, is still looks halfway decent, you can probably resolve the problem with, by lapping it. 
take a fraction of the amount of money you would spend replacing that cylinder and buy yourself a borescope. It's really fun toy. You can look around corners with it, you know, stick it in your ear and yeah. So, or borrow one, but that you will get so much use out of that and it'll, it'll help you preserve all those cylinders much longer. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate yeah. it. Don't, don't, enjoyed it. Don't, don't stress. Don't stress. Yeah. That's the, that's the important flying. thing. Yes. You're gotcha. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Yep. Bye. Our next question is from Jeff, who's trying to feel the flow, the fuel flow. Welcome to the show, Jeff. <laughs> well, good morning, you guys. Or I guess afternoon for you. I'm I'm uh, just at the tail end of the morning here in, in Southeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And I'm in a, a bit of a Faraday cage. I'm in my <laughs> hangar. <laughs> but uh, I, I live in Ketchikan, and I came up to Juneau to work on my plane this week uh, in between storms. So uh, that's where the hangar is. So. And my question to you guys, uh, last, whenever it was, Ian, that we talked last, but um, I fly a very basic Cessna 180H model uh, float plane with a standard 0470 engine and 0470R to be specific. I recently did a panel upgrade, and one of the things I did was I had installed a, a fuel flow gauge, one of the Electronics International uh, FP5s. And so I have two questions, uh, one of which is kind of general and one is model specific. So uh, number one, when uh, you're flight planning and referring to you know, a POH or owner's manual, is the gallons per hour shown on the performance charts as consumption per tack hour or for real time, uh, such as a Hobbs or, uh, or flying hour? Well, so in your 180, when the POH was written, the only, well, I shouldn't say the only, the meter reference was the tachometer, the mechanical tachometer. I would make the assumption with no other input other than an assumption, not even a presumption, but that it would be using the tachometer time. I don't wow. think so, Paul. I, I didn't think I, so. I, I, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> yeah. Fuel flow is reference to wall clock time. Constant time, not variable time. I mean, th- think think about what, what your fuel flow is when you're idling on the ground. The tack is running at half speed, but, you know, nobody's going to say that your gallons per hour is sky high because it's referenced to tack time. They had clocks when that airplane was built. Yeah, but I'm are looking... we Are we allowed to disagree? <laughs> Absolutely. This, it's <laughs> no fun that. if we all agree all the time. So I'm thinking when they did their performance charts and they're they're cruising and they're using analog gauges. So this is what a 180h. What's that? 1960, 67. Do you think they were measuring? I, I don't know what kind of gauges and systems they were using. If they were using the analog stuff, in they, the they were using a wristwatch, Paul. <laughs> Why are you hung up on something on the panel? Oh. They were using oh. a wristwatch. I'm, yeah. I'm not They're, hung up on They it. were I'm... test flying and collecting data. They could have used a stopwatch oh, or man. a digital watch. Or I think you're outvoted, Paul. Okay. <laughs> but the, denom- the denominator has to be a steady constant. It can't be something that's going to change. And then you average. It, that's what tack would give you, right? It would tack go slower when you're idling and faster when you're climbing. But it's supposed to be right on the money when you're, or close when you're in cruise, at least plus or minus the width of the needle, which is only 50 RPM. Yeah, but Very you're not accurate. in cruise. 
You're not in cruise the whole time. <laughs> Paul's not going to give this up, is he? <laughs> Look, if somebody doesn't disagree, you guys just happily just cruise right along. Well, let's see what Jeff says. <laughs> I'm used to, or other than aviation, accustomed to attack time, like, you know, running heavy equipment or even farm tractors. And attack time on a tractor, as I recall, was, you know, when it was at a certain specific RPM for that Ford or Massey Ferguson tractor, it was burning. It, that RPM was for those many RPMs per hour, per t- real time. But you had a little red mark, a tick mark on your tack that showed standard RPM, and you'd run your PTO or whatever else. So like an airplane engine, we're kind of about the same technology, you know, from the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is about right. You know, that was is the tack time then the when it's, you know, you're flying at 23 squared or 25 squared, you know, whatever, whatever your uh, RPMs are, is the gallons per hour measured there. But then, of course, your mixture is a function of altitude, which, and that, that leads into my next question. So we don't, it sounds like we don't have a definitive answer, which is... Yes, we do. We oh, have an yeah. absolutely <laughs> definitive answer. All right, Mike, thank you. It is reference to, it was reference to, to National Bureau of Standards <laughs> official time. In, in Colorado, they were listening to the clock Reference in to the atomic clock. That's you know, right. I mean, that's, like that's what I use Boulder. when I fill out my logbook, is I use my, my clock, not my tack. Right. Me too. I mean, my, my pilot logbook, not my maintenance logbook. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, me too. Right. It's funny. I've asked numerous instructors this question over time or, C, you know, CFIs I've flown with, and I got the same kind of answer. Like, well, it's our, no, it's TAC. No, it's... Uh, hmm. Interesting. <laughs> my first question. And then the, the second question is a little bit more specific as part A and B. The owner's manual for my 67H model gives me performance charts starting at 2,500 feet um, altitude. So for 23 squared, it shows my aircraft manual as 13.1 gallons per hour, while my seaplane supplement shows 12.9 gallons per hour. Why is there a difference in the uh, fuel consumption at 2,500 feet there, I need there, to put floats on my plane. There, there is, no, there is no difference. Yeah, that's bizarre. Th- those two numbers are the same. It's the on, same on altitude. An analog gauge. It, yeah. the, the, the difference is, is oh, much well, thinner than, than a needle width. So. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But were they using a digital clock and digital fuel flow when they put, built these I would these never POHs? guess your fuel flow is better with floats. I think that we all well, need to I mean, floats it, it on is, our planes It now. is true that with floats, uh, time dilation is slightly less. <laughs> <laughs> and you get lift from floats, right? So you're oh, saving gas, right? Oh, gosh. No. The air pressure at the inlet to the induction system has to change with those massive floats hanging there. There's <laughs> got to be a change in the mixture or something. But by the way, you, you know how I'm always talking about manufacturers' uh, TBOs on propellers and engines and, and, and trim tab actuators are all based on the worst-case airplane. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. this is the worst-case airplane. We finally found it. Found it's it, the seaplane yeah. that's operating off of salt water half of the year, and then the other half of the year, the weather's too bad to fly. That is yeah. the worst-case airplane. Yeah. 19,000 hours. So and, what, he, yeah. his airplane was the one that they calibrated all the TBOs to. Yeah. I, I have books and counted how many different engines it's had over time but uh i know that this one you know i've been taking very good care of it the compressions keep coming good i do uh routine oil sampling checks and uh you know it 
and it seems to be holding up. And so whatever I'm doing, I'm not killing it yet. Well, it's a great, it's a great airplane and a great engine. It's probably Absolutely. the best engine that Continental ever built. So, well, I sure like it. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, so I guess uh, flying in the neighborhood of 13 or 14 gallons per hour is probably going to help me. It'll be a little bit rich, but uh, that uh, will probably be where a good place to be for my, my general. I, I, I recommend leaning until the engine starts running a little rough and then richening until it just barely runs smooth again. That's, that's absolutely can't, perfect. Can't, can't, can't go wrong. Yeah, on your engine, you'll end up half of it's lean a peak, and the other, well, you'll have two <laughs> yeah. lean a peak, two at peak, and two rich a peak, and that's about but as good as you can get. Don't, don't try to lean to fuel flow, and don't try to lean no. to the book. Absolutely let the, let the engine tell you when the mixture's correct. Yeah, give it a try. That's what I did for the first 500 hours flying the plane. So, uh, you know, I just went back to I, I got what happened to what, what happened to the other 18,500 hours? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeff, thanks for the uh, question. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. For you guys' time, and thanks for the invitation. Sure, stay Just warm. Just remember, yeah. wall clock time. Don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank two you, to, Mike. Two to one. <laughs> well, that's a wrap on another great session. The three of us know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love your input. Send us your ideas on what you want to hear. Questions and comments can go to podcasts at aopa.org. Enjoy the spring weather, fly safely, and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody.